Good evening. If I were to ask you, where in the Gospels do you find a wedding, all of you would probably respond with, in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where we have Jesus' first recorded miracle changing the water into wine. I would suggest to you that there is another marriage that is more important Another wedding ceremony that actually happens before John chapter 2, and it's found in John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. There's a marriage, a wedding between these two concepts. And it's important as Christians that we understand this marriage. All too often, Christians divorce the two. And it's sad when this happens, because it ruins our credibility. Truth gets in the way of grace, or grace gets in the way of truth. Some toughen the gospel by minimizing grace and love. Some try to toughen the gospel by emphasizing truth. But here's the truth about those two approaches. Both keep people from Jesus. Attempts to soften the gospel by emphasizing love and grace or attempts to toughen the gospel by beating people over the head with a Bible both keep people from Jesus. Notice it again. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Notice that there is an and and not an or. It's not grace or truth. Jesus was about both grace and truth. It wasn't like he was 50% one and 50% other. He was 100% grace, 100% truth. It's not like he flipped a switch when he wanted to be grace-filled and then flipped it back off when he wanted to talk about hell. He was about both. And his grace and truth were always in perfect harmony. They were a perfect marriage, not a contradiction. There are two ditches that we need to avoid at all costs. There is the truth-only ditch and the grace-only ditch. And both are detrimental to the cause of Christ. Both are unloving. Everyone seems to be concerned about becoming liberal, and no one seems to be as concerned about becoming a Pharisee. And we shouldn't strive for either. Both have the potential of causing great harm to the cause of Christ. Look, it's in no one's best interest for them to go to hell. That's not in anyone's best interest. If we are with, willing to withhold the truth from someone in the name of grace, then we don't truly love them. If we are willing to bash someone with the truth and remove grace from the equation, we don't really love them. Any concept of grace that makes sin more appealing or acceptable is wrong. It's unbiblical and it is sinful. It's cheap grace. But presenting truth in a way that presents God as unloving and uncaring can be just as detrimental, right? Jesus was full of grace and truth. And you know what? Some people loved him and some people hated him. Some even went as far as nailing him to a cross. But all too often we're imbalanced. We're heavy on one at the expense of the other. Pharisees were people of conviction but no compassion. Obviously, we want to avoid following in their footsteps, but on the other hand are those folks who are full of uh, compassion yet have no conviction. They are people with no morals or no standards. They're more 
sentimental in nature. And Paul warns about this kind of imbalance in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we read from this morning. Starting in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Folks, you can be straight as a gun barrel spiritually, or doctrinally, I should say, and as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. You can be straight as a gun barrel doctrinally, but empty as a gun barrel spiritually. Paul didn't exactly say it that way, but I think his point is clear. You can be right doctrinally, but you also must be right devotionally. And I think Paul's message can be summed up this way. Do right things with the right heart, because conviction means very little without compassion. So here's my point for bringing all this up. Homosexuality is wrong. Period. End of discussion. It's not in line with God's will. But all too often, Christians have been lopsided in their approach on this issue. We're strong on the wrong, but light on the love part. Many times, Christians are just as wrong as the people they are condemning for the sin and the way that they approach it. And we are never justified for hate, no matter what the sin is that we're opposing. The sin is the abomination, not the people. People are victims, they're not villains. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. What is the abomination? Well, it. (laughs) What is it? Well, it's the sin of homosexuality. God hates the sin, but he loves people. And because he loves people, he hates what sin does to the people he loves. You see, sin creates brokenness. It causes a fracture in things. It causes us to be at war with God, at war with ourselves, at war with other people. It creates this moral chasm between us and God. But Jesus, of course, bridged the gap. The cross is a bridge, right? It bridged the gap. He dined with sinners. He hung out with those who needed him most. And don't you think that group probably included homosexuals? I don't see why not. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand same-sex attraction. I'll admit that. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Uh, I don't understand the sexual desires that exist between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. But I'll tell you what I do understand. I do understand temptation. I do understand struggle. And I certainly understand sin. I am well acquainted with sin and the adverse effects of sin. And my guess is that you are too. No one should understand the heinousness of sin and the constant battle with sin better than us. And no one should understand the grace of God better than us. A lot of our disdain comes from those who wish to push the homosexual agenda upon us forcefully. And certainly that can make us angry. It makes me angry at times. It also greatly saddens me that more than 50 religious groups in North America have come out in support of homosexuality. It angers and saddens me that so many in our world readily accept the sin of of homosexuality as a God-sanctioned lifestyle. And, And I'm honestly tired of being called homophobic. I don't have an unreasonable fear, which is what a phobia is, right, of homosexuality or homosexuals. I have a biblical conviction that it's wrong. However, 
I cannot allow my anger and my sadness to overshadow my compassion or my conviction. There are two things that we cannot ignore if we desire to land on the truth on this issue. First of all, we must consider the science. Evolution is a theory, although it is often presented as an airtight case for the origin of species. But let's imagine for a moment that evolution is, in fact, the truth. Let's, let's just imagine that for a moment, that it is the determining factor for how all of us came into existence. How would homosexuality stack up in the face of evolution? Not well at all. The laws of evolution and that of genetic succession are rather harsh when it comes to any trait that prevents reproduction. There is a simple formula that paints a very stark picture, and here it is. One gay man plus one gay man equals zero children. That's not trying to be funny. That's just the truth. Flip it around and look at it from the female side, and you get the same thing. Go back, say, ten generations, and assume any fertility rates that you want for lesbian and straight women and calculate what would happen. Even a slight difference would cause a homosexual gene to rapidly fade from the population. But think about it this way. If the fertility rates were the same, how could women be considered lesbians if they were having the same amount of heterosexual sex to produce an equivalent number of children? Even if a tendency toward homosexuality were genetic, every time that gene expressed itself, it would fall out of the gene pool. Any genetics teacher worth their salt would chuckle at the position or the notion that homosexuality can be genetic if there is no mechanism for homosexuals to pass their genes on to their children as frequently as heterosexuals pass their genes on to their children. The science does not support the notion that a person is born gay. Science is about what is observable. And observation over a period of generations will not support the claim that some individuals are born homosexual based on their genetics. Now, geneticists have studied this issue extensively, but have been unable to prove that homosexuality is genetic. Some have tried to skew the findings to show otherwise, but many years ago, there was a man by the name of Simon LaVey, a geneticist who reported his findings and indicated subtle differences between the brains of, of homosexuals and heterosexual men. Some took these findings and used them as proof that people are born gay. However, Here's what Simon LaVey himself said. He said, it's important to stress what I didn't find. I did not prove that homosexuality is genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way. The most common mistake people make in interpreting my work. Nor did I locate a gay center in the brain. It just goes to show you, and I'm sure you're aware of this already, but politics and a political agenda has a lot to do with this subject. It plays a big role in all of this. Transgenderism, which is a related issue, is one that psychologists and scientists and geneticists and others who study the issue closely are being pressured to report findings that are false, yet coincide with a political agenda. But make no mistake, the data on this and other polemic political tools and topics is being fudged and in some cases completely misrepresented in an effort to gain political backing. The science does not support the cause. There is no homosexual gene. 
people are not born gay? Are some more predisposed to homosexuality? Perhaps. Maybe based on the way that they were raised, the environment they grew up in. Maybe, perhaps, they're more predisposed to choose that lifestyle. But that's very different than saying that someone is genetically homosexual from birth. It's a really good book that I would encourage you to pick up. It's by Guy Hammond. It's called Gay and Christian. And Guy Hammond, in the book, tells his story. He is a man that uh, has a ministry in this area, ministers to homosexuals, and he talks about how in his life he endured the struggle, he went to Scripture, he became a Christian and figured out that he cannot continue his lifestyle and be right with God. And the whole book is walking through his story, and it's really good. And one of the things that he says in the book is that nature versus nurture, I want to get this right, he says, nature loaded the gun, nurture pulled the trigger. Probably a better way to look at it. Of course, science is not all that we have to go on, right? The Bible is clear that the practice, and notice I said the practice, of homosexuality is a sin. But understand that those who are pushing the homosexual agenda, those who are seeking to justify it, know all the scriptures that the Christians have in their holster. And so sometimes you wonder, well, that makes a good point. How do, how do, we, how do we go against that or how do we, how do we argue that? Well, I think in Genesis chapter 19, we read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Sodom was destroyed due to its wickedness, and some argue that it was destroyed because of homosexuality. That was one of the reasons. That wasn't the only reason. You see, some visitors came to the house of Lot, and men from the city gather outside Lot's door, and they demand that Lot hand over his visitors so that they could have sex with them. You go over to the letter of Jude, and there is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it reads, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example, obviously, an example of the eternal consequences that come from engaging in, in sin, and sexual immorality is one of those sins. But those who support the, the, the homosexual agenda would say, well, yeah, but that's not talking about loving, monogamous relationships. It's talking about rape. We go over to Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And here God speaks very pointedly about the sin of same-sex relations and even ties the death penalty to it. There are some would say, yes, but this lies within the context of, of other things that would be considered sinful that we do all the time, like two kinds of material uh, for a garment that you wear or perhaps sowing two kinds of seed in your field. I mean, you're just, you're just cherry-picking. Plus, we don't live under the old law. I'm not Jewish, right? So why should I be amenable to these laws? Over in the New Testament, we find that God's view of homosexuality doesn't change. In Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27, it reads, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul is speaking to individuals who, and I quote, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. These people exchanged the truth of God's word for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And 
It's because of this that God gave them over to degrading passions. But someone might object at this point and say, yes, but Paul is mainly talking about the concept of idolatry. Again, there's no mention here of loving monogamous relationships that are same sex. And what about Jesus? Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. Jesus never spoke out against homosexuality. So how do we answer these questions? How do we answer these arguments? Remember our guiding question from Genesis 1-1 that we talked about last week? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe that? Because if you do, then you have a biblical worldview. If you don't believe that, well, then you don't have a biblical worldview. It all boils down to that. Do you believe that we came about by an act or an accident? Are we here because God created or are we here because of chance? And it all really boils down to that. And I think within that, here's how we answer some of these arguments with Hebrews 13.4. I think that's a primary text that we need to turn to. Again, with conviction, but also with compassion. You're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to win a soul, right? And in, he- in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So sex outside of marriage is wrong. Okay? Very plain. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. So the question becomes, what is a marriage? How do we define a marriage? Let me go back to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 22 through 25, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what is a marriage defined by God? One man, one woman joined together for life. Sex is a gift from God reserved for a man and woman to enjoy within the confines of marriage. Scripture also reveals that anything outside of God's created purpose for sex is sinful and destructive. Matthew 15, 19 and 20, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Notice the word adulteries in that passage. Your version may use the phrase sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's the term morkeia, and it denotes one who has unlawful intercourse. In other words, having sex outside the confines of the marriage covenant. But Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He never condemned homosexuality. Well, you realize that Jesus never spoke out against bestiality or incest? Jesus never said one word about pornography. If Jesus had to speak out against everything, he'd still be writing today. But he did talk about marriage. And he did reiterate God's plan for marriage, which tells us everything that we need to know. He spoke explicitly about sexual immorality and fornication. The only way to get around the plain truth of Scripture is to either employ asegesis, and we've talked about that before. Asegesis is making the Bible say what we want to say with no regard to interpretation. Or we have to move away from a high view of God's Word. Homosexuality is... It's not a political issue. It's not a civil rights issue. It's a moral issue. Plain and simple. Some would say, but I I don't have a choice. I was born this way. I'd give anything to change it. 
It's just the way that I am. God made me this way, and therefore, it can't be wrong. And look, we could discuss all the factors, all the different factors that come into play to make a person have the orientation that they have. And we can, we can discuss genetics, born this way, upbringing, whatever. But let me just say this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even if it were proven tomorrow that there was indeed a gay gene or a genetic predisposition, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't affect my faith one bit or what the Bible says on the matter. I'm heterosexual. I was attracted to women. Now I'm attracted to one woman. Make sure you tell her that. Do I have the right to fulfill that orientation in an immoral way? No, I don't. That's my orientation. But I'm married to one woman. I don't have the right to go and act on that orientation without any sort of guidelines or boundaries. My sexual desire is subject to the spirit that rules my life. You know, there are people who are born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Definitely a predisposition to alcoholism. They still have to make a choice whether they take a drink. What about the gentleman whose wife has had a stroke? My grandfather was married to a woman who had a stroke. And I, I don't know why I thought about this, but as I got older in life, I thought, you know, they were married. He was 80-something when he passed away, and she was in her 80s as well. For how many years that they never had any kind of sexual relations because of her condition? And my grandfather was by her side all the way. He stuck by her. He took care of her. Did he still have the desire? I don't know. We never talked about it, but I assume he did. Did he have the right to go and fulfill that desire somewhere else? Of course not. He didn't have justification to have sexual relations with someone outside the confines of marriage because, just because his wife was incapable of fulfilling those, that desire. Just because you have a certain orientation or urge inherent within you does not give you the right to act upon it. That's something that the book, by the way, by Guy Hammond talks about, and I think, again, plug for that book. I want you to notice that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. We talked about this last week, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. <laughs> so what about... The church in Corinth was so dynamic that it brought people out of homosexuality. Of all the churches that you read about, this one, I mean, they had all kinds of problems, including dealing with an issue of, of, of incest and an approval of an incestuous affair. And yet somehow they were able to bring people out of homosexuality and these other sins. I find that amazing. You ever thought about that? What was the dynamic in this church that they could lead people out of that sin? <laughs> I mean, you think about all their disunity and all the things that they had going on. It's kind of like Noah and the ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stench inside. Yet something powerful, yet something powerful must have been at work in this very dysfunctional church. How is it that this church could walk people out of homosexuality? 
How do we replicate that? Because I would say that we are far from the church in Corinth. Well, here's something that I think we need to understand. Orientation is not equal to practice. Just because you have a certain orientation does not mean that you are a sinner. Okay, so we need to get that straight. I may have been a heavy drinker in the past. I wasn't, but I may, you know, just for the sake of argument, let's say that I was a heavy drinker in the past. Alcohol destroyed my marriage, my health, my life, but I left that behind. I no longer drink. In fact, I haven't had a drink in years, but I still struggle with the temptation. Those desires are still really strong, and the urge persists at times. How should this church respond to me? Do they discipline me? Well, I hope not. I'm fighting. I'm trying. I'm not sinning. The church should be there to help me in this battle. They're there to encourage me and help me to find my focus. Likewise, there may be someone who comes to us and says, you know, I struggle with same-sex attraction. I haven't acted on it, but the urge is there. The desire is there, and I don't want it. I want to please God. How should the church respond? Same way. Love and support and help you fight the good fight. Here's something else. Christians need to avoid blanket condemnation. I think it's easy to look around our world and say, well, they're just a bunch of heathens. And I know the world seems very wicked. I realize that evil is running rampant, but maybe, maybe it's because they don't know better. Maybe it's because they ignore the truth. They've heard it and they don't want it, but maybe it's because they've never heard it. Maybe they've come in contact with Christians who spewed venom that were hateful and mean-spirited. Maybe they're living the only way they've ever known. But I don't think we need to write someone off until we've exercised patience and love and have shown them Jesus. I don't think we need to be assuming that they don't want to hear the truth. Paul said, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You know, I want every person to know that Oldham Lane loves all people. Don't you? I want every person to know that Oldham Lane loves all people. I want them, I want the person who struggles with same-sex attraction to know that this is a church where they can find love and support and help them to focus on God and Jesus. I want the person who is living a homosexual lifestyle to know that they can come here and find compassion, encouragement, and assistance. No side remarks, no hateful or rude comments, no whispers behind their backs, just conviction and compassion. We love you enough to help you to come to the truth. Oldham Lane will not run from someone who is struggling, no matter what the sin is. Oldham Lane will always run to the one who is struggling with sin. Oldham Lane is a safe place to confess and to work on being more Christ-like. But I also pray that Oldham Lane will be balanced because we can't lose our balance. If we fail to maintain our balance, we lose our voice. I know of a preacher who passed away not long ago, really fine preacher in his heyday, a great Bible class teacher. But as he got older, he was still preaching around on the lecture circuit and gospel meetings. And no matter what topic they gave him, he turned it into abortion. Every topic, doesn't matter what they asked him to speak on, he would leave that topic and immediately start bashing And he would start harping on the issue of abortion, how sinful it is and all that. Was he right? Yeah, I mean, the things he said were true, but he lost his voice. Nobody wanted to have him for a gospel meeting anymore. We didn't ask you to come talk about abortion. That's fine and good. We want you to talk about whatever it is we asked you to talk about. If we're not balanced, we lose our voice. 
a single doctrine or a single sin can consume us and consequently we can get off course. We can lose our compassion. We can lose our influence. And if we get out of balance and we lose our voice, well, we lose our influence. You know, a candle at dusk is of very little value. It's in the darkness when you really see the usefulness of a candle, right? It's in the dark that a candle shines the brightest. And as Christians, I think it would do us well to not be so negative about our culture. Because right now, our society is immersed in darkness. And now more than ever is the time to shine. Now more than ever. It's midnight and we have the greatest opportunity to be the greatest influence and to make the greatest impact. So instead of having such a doom and gloom attitude and and talking about how terrible everything is, let's wake up to the opportunity that's been afforded to us. Let's not be defeated. Let's be energized. Jesus lived under a terribly unjust and immoral government, but he didn't obsess over cursing the darkness. He balanced his condemnation with being a light. And we need to do the same. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for this opportunity. We're always blessed to come together as a family. But we're also blessed to leave this place and to go into a world that needs us. You have given us an opportunity. And instead of cursing the darkness, may we wake up to the opportunity to be the light. We love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Are you struggling tonight? Can we help you? Do you need prayers? Do you need support? Like we talked about last week, I realize that some things you may not be comfortable sharing in this space, but just know that the ministers and the elders here want to talk with you. We want to help you any way we can. So you don't necessarily have to come down the aisle and answer the invitation that way. If you'd like to talk to us privately, that that door is open as well. But Dave's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in some way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?